0: sermon as we continue on in Acts chapter 2. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. And the sermon goes like this. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you would suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will see dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers. Brothers. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified.
1: Well, Mountain View, thanks so much for gathering with us again this evening. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the way you've stuck with us uh, for the last 14, 15 weeks doing this live experience. And although there have been a lot of pieces we've experimented with and we're trying to uh, master all of these things, I just want to tell you I appreciate your patience and I appreciate the way that you've engaged, you've stayed engaged with us. I would encourage you as... Mountain View begins to wrap up our fiscal year that you would just continue to practice generosity with us and know that every dollar that you give, every penny of every dollar you give, uh, goes to affect life change, and so thank you for that. Also, Happy Father's Day, and uh, I'll mention that again here in a few minutes, but just want to pause and tell you, Happy Father's Day. Those of you who are fathers, look like a father, might be a father, uh, maybe, maybe care for somebody a child in your life. Thank you for what you do. Um, can't tell you how much we appreciate you. One of the, one of the things that has puzzled um, historians for years, literally years, is, is how in the world did Christianity um, spread like it did? Especially in the Roman Empire. How did it spread so fast and so quickly and so aggressively, like it did after Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles? how did it spread? And and so secular and Christian historians have spent a lot of time trying to make sense of how that happened. You can actually go to OPB or PBS website. You could type in, how did Christianity spread so fast? And you will find a plethora of essays written by historians trying to answer the question, considering that Christianity started with a ragtag group of people, uneducated group of people who had no power, no influence, no money. Why did this religious especially when you compare it to all the other uh, philosophies of the time and, and the other world religions of the time and all the political movements of the time, why did Christianity succeed in the Roman Empire, not just the Roman Empire, but absolutely sweep the Roman Empire and eventually sweep completely across the world? The group left behind was a relatively small group of people ordinary people, everyday fishermen and carpenters, and they never advanced Christianity with a sword for the first 400 years. As a matter of fact, no one picked up a sword to defend it. It didn't make followers rich. As a matter of fact, to be a Christian, often you would have to surrender your home and your fortune. And the gospel produced communities of people unlike any other communities the world had ever seen. Historians have asked the question for a long time, and I want to give you just a few of their answers. One of the first answers that you'll find uh, pretty consistently, why did Christianity succeed? Well, because Christianity provided a sense of belonging. Historians said up until Christianity, religions divided people. They separated people. And every religion until Christianity has it divided people. But the amazing thing about Christianity is it was an inclusive religion. It took royalty and it took slaves and it brought them together and rolled them side by side and they called one another brothers and sisters. It was the first multi-ethnic community on the planet. They had taught that all people were equal in the eyes of God, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, uh, master and slave, men and women. And so people looked at Christianity as being a place where they could all belong. Another reason is this they were peaceful. And what I mean by that is that there were a lot of religious groups that were persecuted in those days, but only Christians refused to fight back. Instead, they prayed for forgiveness of their captors, of the people who were persecuting them. And they smiled all the way to execution. Another reason is this. Christians died well. They died well. When they were put into the arena with lions to be devoured and viewed by all the people around them, they would come into the arena singing and smiling and hugging one another and praising God together. And the credibility of Christianity in the pagan world grew because one of the reasons it spread like crazy, according to the historians, is they'd never seen anyone face death quite like they did. One more. They practiced generous welfare. This is what I mean. Hospitals were built and, and soup kitchens were built and widows and orphans were provided for and cared for. One of the biggest needs was the care for widows. And so if you were, uh, lived in the Roman Empire, and guess what? You were a widow, your husband had died, and you didn't have any money, then you were at the bottom of society. And so the church, the church literally took possession of widows and paid them so that they could survive in their community. And so, as a matter of fact, in in the 300s, A.D. 300s, there was an emperor. His name was Julian. This is what he says about Christianity. He was one of the last Roman emperors who was trying to stop the spread of Christianity. And so he actually called Christianity atheism. And the reason he called it atheism was because they rejected, Christians rejected the concept of many gods and only wanted to follow the one true God. And so this is what Julian says. He says atheism or Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal. There is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. This is what the Roman Julian said. Christians, listen, Christians were more peaceful than anybody else. Christians died better than anybody else. They they included people better than anybody else. And they cared for people better than anyone else. And so the question that we get to ask ourselves and the question that we get to deal with is where did all of this come from? Where did it come from? And last week we learned about what happens when power and truth intersect. The book of Acts tells us exactly what that very explicable and incredible release of energy is. And it's when the Holy Spirit came down, the Holy Spirit of God came down on them. And so let me show you what happened whenever the Christian message was preached. The Holy Spirit of God came down and he tended the message. And this is what happens in the Roman Empire. Pastor Craig read it, they were cut to the heart. And Pastor Craig read this relatively short and, and to the point sermon that Peter preached. And it led to this extraordinary response where, where more than 3,000 people surrendered their lives to Jesus and were baptized in one day. You remember, Peter's sermon was a response to the moment when up in the upper room, the Holy Spirit came down on them like wind, uh, the sound of wind and like fire. And it came down on them and they begin to speak in a language where everybody could understand. So they went into the streets and they just started talking about everything that Jesus had began to do. They talked about everything they witnessed and everything that they saw. And this is what they did. And all of a sudden people from every nation and every tribe and every language could understand what they were saying. And so Peter stands up and he explains this multi miracle. Why? Because some people were astonished while other people said, these guys have had too much to want, wine to drink early in the morning. And so this was the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Holy Spirit as he promised to send by Jesus. It was a sign that God wanted the gospel to be preached. And he wanted the gospel to spread across not just the Roman Empire, but the entire world and all the nations. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we get this incredible moment. This is what it says. Men of Israel, hear these words. And so, this is what Peter preaches. He's inspired with the Holy Spirit. He answers their question. It goes on in verse 36 Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. Now, what an incredible concept here. What an incredible moment where Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is preaching the sermon and explaining to all of the crowds, and they're understanding their own language. And I want you to see. That what Peter preached isn't so far off from the power and truth we talked about two weeks ago. When Dr. Luke opens up his book, the book of Acts, where he's recording the Acts of the Apostles. Do you remember this? Acts chapter 1 verse 1. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And What did Peter preach? he preached what Jesus did and what Jesus started in the tell the day he was taken up and so what did what did peter preach that Jesus is ascended into heaven is sitting at the right hand of god and it goes on that he presented himself alive he said listen he rose from the dead and he be we are witnesses we saw him he was alive And after suffering by many proofs, this is it, that Jesus died for our sins. So do you see what Peter is preaching? He preached the truth. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the people heard him in their own language. And you know what happened next? I mean, this is so cool because what happened next? Read it in verse 37. They heard this and they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart. It's like a knife that enters the chest. That's what cut to the heart means. And and Jesus promised this Holy Spirit that would do this cutting to the heart work. You remember John chapter 16 verse 8. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The word convict is the Greek word elenko. And it means to cross-examine, to inspect, to press with evidence until our inconsistencies and our darkness are exposed and we consent to the truth. And so this morning I want us to look at this sermon, not just the sermon, I want us to look at the response to the sermon. If we were to ask, ask ourselves and answer two questions, the first question is this, why were they cut to the heart? Why were they cut to the heart? And, and the first part of the answer is this, they realized the truth about Jesus. They realized the truth about Jesus. They realized that they had been wrong about Jesus and suddenly realized the truth. And great things began to happen. While Jesus was on earth, there was a lot of different ideas about who Jesus was. People wanted Jesus to be many different things. For example, some wanted him to be a prophet. Some wanted him to call people back to the law. Some wanted Jesus to be political. He wanted wanted them to deliver them from oppression and overturn the Roman Empire. Others wrote Jesus off as a fake. They assumed he was just a magician of type, with some sort of charismatic power over people. And here's what I want you to know Jesus would not conform to everyone's expectations. He refused to conform to their expectations. Jesus, he claimed to be God and he demanded complete and total and absolute lordship over his followers. That's who Jesus was. He forgave people's sins, something that the Jews considered blasphemous. He let people worship him and he even said, listen, if you don't worship me, the rocks and the trees will cry out their praise of me. Jesus claimed to be on a rescue mission and to save people and claimed that he was the only way. And people liked Jesus. They they really did. But they wanted him to be quiet. They didn't want him to talk about all this God and, and Lord stuff. And Jesus, he wouldn't be quiet. So you know what they did? They crucified him. And many of us today, we have something that we'd really prefer Jesus be Maybe some of us view Jesus as a great teacher. Others of us view Jesus as as the backbone of the American morality. Many of us claim that Jesus is one way of many ways to know God. Understand this. Jesus never allowed himself to be downgraded. Ever. He was the Messiah. And he was never going to be downgraded to anything less than the Messiah. And so Peter Peter told the crowd, you killed him, you killed him, but God raised him up. And if if God resurrected Jesus, then what we think about Jesus isn't so important, is it? If God resurrected Jesus from the dead, then what we want Jesus to be, what what we think Jesus should be, what we think Jesus represents, really isn't as important as who Jesus really is and who Jesus said he was. Have you opened yourself up? Have Have you opened yourself up? Have you asked the question, do I believe who Jesus says he was? Or do we insist that Jesus should be who we think he should be? See, the crowd... When they heard this truth, when they realized that they were wrong about him, all of a sudden they were cut to the heart because they realized the truth about who Jesus was. They pointed to the resurrection. And this is a question. Did God resurrect Jesus from the dead? And the people listening to Peter, they didn't see how they could deny it. I mean, you got to keep in mind here, you got a crowd of people, over 3,000 people at least, who have come in to celebrate uh, the day of Pentecost and the feast of first fruits. And they're all in the city and and they're hearing Jesus or they're hearing Peter preach about Jesus and how he has been risen from the dead. and, And it's in the city, Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, where he was buried. And you got 3,000 people at least here. One of them could have said, whoa, 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 whoa. Ha, uh-uh. come with me. I'll show you where his body is right now. At least one of them could have said, Peter, you are a liar. You're not telling the truth. Jesus isn't risen from the dead. He's over in the grave right around the corner. I'll go show you where he is. But, it, but they didn't. No one debated it. Everyone accepted it. At this point in time, Jesus had made so many appearances to people that when Peter preached he was risen, they believed that he was risen. Nobody debated it. Nobody argued with him. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what Paul writes. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And then here it is, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And what's amazing to me, what what absolutely baffles my mind is that, that the crowd could not dismiss the disciples as liars. I mean, why would they be so committed to a lie? Why would they, what, what profit would they gain in this life from a lie? See, this confession didn't give them, make them rich and famous and powerful. Every one of Jesus' disciples ultimately died a martyr's death doing what? Going from city to city and country to country and town to town, preaching that they saw him. He is risen. He is not dead. He sits at the right hand of God. Listen, Christians. Sometimes we make Christianity about a lot of things. And we say, well, you got to believe this, you got to believe this, you got to believe this. But you know what? In the early church, what were the disciples committed to? The disciples were committed to getting the truth out there. And the truth is this. Jesus died for the sins of the world. He was buried, but God raised him from the dead. And he sits at the right hand of God today. When we make Christianity about anything other than that, we might miss the point. And we might take from the Holy Spirit his power to cut to the heart. And so the crowd, when they heard this truth, were cut to the heart. They concluded, we wanted Jesus to be one thing, but his resurrection declares he is who he said he is. And for all of us today, we have to open up our hearts and our minds and our souls to who Jesus presents himself to be They were cut to the heart and they realized the truth about Jesus. They were also cut to the heart for a second reason. And here it is. They were cut to the heart because they realized they were responsible for Jesus' death. Wouldn't that cut you to the heart? A couple of different times Peter pointed to them and he said, you killed them. This is pretty bold. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here it is. You crucified and you killed. That's what Peter says. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Here is the truth. This Jesus whom you crucified. What was Peter saying? What was Peter preaching here? What did he mean when he said, you killed him? And I think what he was doing is he was preaching globally. Peter preached, you killed Jesus to all people, including you and me. That's what he did. He preached it. He said, he said you killed Jesus, and he was talking to me, and he was talking to you. He was talking to people across every span of time and every boundary and every border. He was talking to all of us, saying, listen, you did this. And not everyone in Jerusalem, however, was there when Jesus was crucified. Not everybody was, you know, when he entered in with the, the triumphal entry, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and a week later shouting, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify Not everybody who's listening to Peter preach were there in those moments. But Peter still said, you killed him. Look at verse 39. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. See, this is the message. Peter's saying, I'm telling you right now that all of us, are responsible for the death of Jesus. But Peter also preached to himself. Peter Peter also preached to himself, not just a particular group of Jews in Jerusalem, but he meant it for himself. Peter preached, you killed Jesus, pointing at himself. On the last night of Jesus, he's arrested. He just had the Lord's Supper up in the upper room. And they go to the garden, and after the garden, Jesus encounters some soldiers and they arrest him. And it's amazing because the disciples they scatter. They run for their lives and and uh, Peter actually denies Jesus 3 times. And I love what Dr. Luke does in the Gospel of Luke because he gives us this very small little important detail in his gospel about the third denial. In Luke chapter 22 verse 61 it says this. And the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. And Peter suddenly remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Man, I want you to catch the gravity of what's going on. And Peter suddenly is cut to the heart. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The face of Jesus at this point in time, the face of Jesus was probably bruised and bloodied and certainly had some spit on it. As he's facing these trials... And Jesus looks at Peter at the third denial. And suddenly Peter realizes in that very moment that Jesus was being beaten and was going to be crucified and was going to be put on trial because of his betrayal. And Luke essentially tells us that Peter in that moment was cut to the heart and he runs and he weeps bitterly. And those who were listening to Peter preach this incredible sermon when he said, You crucified him. I crucified him. Our sin crucified him. They came to the same conclusion. They were cut to the heart and they realized we did this. We did this. We're responsible for the death of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was wounded for our iniquities. He was wounded for our sins. Have we had this moment where we've realized, I put him on the cross. See, this is what happens. Often this is what happens. We're cut to the heart. And all of a sudden when we are cut to the heart, we realize that our sin did this to Jesus. Jesus. And suddenly I can see Jesus looking at me almost with tenderness and compassion across the room when I've betrayed him. And all of a sudden he can see me with my rebellion and my sin and my cheating. And he can see me with my refusal to do life God's way. And my selfishness and my pride and my hatred and my bigotry and my laziness. And I finally come to the realization that I don't just break the laws of God. That's not what's important but I'm cut to the heart when I realize I break the heart of God. And that's what happened to Peter. And that's what happened to the crowd as they're listening to Peter preach this sermon. They were cut to the heart and they realized, they realized, listen, I, I've been going to God and I've been saying to God, I don't trust you. I've been going to God and I've been saying, I'd rather be in charge of my life. I don't want you to be in my charge, charge of my life. But Peter and the crowd, they realized they were cut to the heart. And they realized, we did this. We did this to Jesus. And have you been cut to the heart? Has this realization happened to you? Where you see that it was your sin. Where I see it was my sin. That put Jesus on the cross. And that we need his forgiveness which he so willingly desires to give. And so we ask the question, why were they cut to the heart? And second, what we have to do is we have to answer this question. What happened? What happened when they were cut on the heart? What happens when they were cut deeply? The knife comes in and there's a cross-examination What happened? Because because there's probably some similarities that should happen with us when we are cut to the heart too. And so what happened? Let's look at Acts chapter 2 verse 37 to discover why. It says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and he continued to exhort them. And this is what he said. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so when we're cut to the heart what happens? The first thing that happens is there is a desire for forgiveness. There is a desire for the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the crowd's looking at Peter and they're saying, we know Peter denied him. We know that Peter, you know, helped supply the power behind the cross. We know all of these things, but we want what Peter has. Peter has forgiveness and Peter has this power that we call the Holy Spirit. And so Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit, how does he respond Acts chapter two, verse 38? He says to them, repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of sins and the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. There it is. See, to get this we need the cross. See, Jesus died on the cross because of my sin. And Jesus died on the cross to rescue me from my sin. Do you see how the cross is an end thing? It's not an or, it's all of it complete. The cross is the invitation of God's grace. It's an offer us, offer for us to have a new life and a new home. And Jesus resurrected from the dead. And this is what he said. He said, You killed me, but I died for you. It's the end conversation. And anytime I preach Acts chapter 2, verse 38, I, I have to address this thing called baptism. And so I want to address this baptism thing for just a moment. One of the questions that I get asked often is, what does baptism mean? And and, or why should I be baptized? And to be honest with you, when I was 13 years old and I was cut to the heart, when I realized it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross, and when I realized I wanted forgiveness and I wanted the power of the Holy Spirit, I went to my minister and I said to my minister, I said, what should I do? And he said, you should repent and be baptized. So you know what I did? I repented, and I was baptized, and I didn't ask at that moment the question, well, well, does baptism save me? Do I need to have it? Is it a said? I didn't ask those questions. Honestly, I didn't ask those questions until I was in my first ministry, and I was 20 years old, and somebody came to me and said, well, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven, and I'm like, I, 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 don't, I don't know. 20 years ago, I didn't know the answer to that question. I didn't know it was a debate. I didn't know it was a conversation. Because when I look at Acts chapter 2. And I realize people are cut to their heart. What do they do? Peter who was inspired. Who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can't deny that. When asked the question. Men what should we do? Responds. With a clear instruction. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. So, you know what I did? I did it. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, it was Peter who answered the crowd's question. And so on September 5th, 1993, I was baptized, and it focused on my outward move toward Jesus while obeying what Jesus said. The inward expression of my new life as a disciple of Jesus was going to be all about as I pursued to live more and more like him daily. And I'm still on that journey that's what it was i didn't begin to wrap my head around the argument until 20 years ago uh, let's just take it at face value and say listen peter being filled with the holy spirit said to them when they were cut to the heart repent be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and for the gift of the holy spirit a second thing that happens when we're cut to the heart is they change their mind about jesus the word repentance means change of mind it's more than just to resolve to do better, or to be better. It's a new attitude towards God. As humans, sometimes we resist God, and we push God away as an adversary, and we now need to see God as a loving father. And I talked about this last week, when truth and power intersect, all of a sudden we can see the goodness of God and his loving goodness, and we can see the justice of God and his loving justice. And this was the meaning of why the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, here it is, not knowing that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance. And sometimes as Christians, we miss that. We think we got to preach the truth. We got to say it. We got to tell them how wrong they are. We got to turn them away from their whoa, 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 Paul understood that it was the kindness of God that leads people, the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. Listen, it's Father's Day. And I just want to tell you, you, no matter what your experience is as a father, no matter what your experience is with a father, you have a heavenly father who has always loved you, who has always watched for you, who is good, who has never given up on you, who is constantly trying to draw you toward him. That's who he is. We're going to sing about that actually in a few moments. But there's one last area that I think we see what happens when we're cut to the heart? They surrendered. They surrendered themselves totally and completely to Jesus. Listen, turning to Jesus means we recognize him as Lord. There is always a cross and there is always a throne. And, and either I'm on the throne and Jesus is still on the cross or I'm on the cross And Jesus is on the throne. See, Jesus died on the cross. And when I surrender my life to him as my Savior and as my Lord, I take my rightful place on the cross. And Jesus ascended to heaven and he is on the throne. And if I'm on the throne, then Jesus is still on the cross. Which one is it for you? Are you striving to be the Lord and the King of your own life? Or are you allowing Jesus to be in his rightful spot, the throne at the right hand of God, leading and guiding and directing and doing the work that he started to do in us and through us with the power of the Holy Spirit? And have you taken up your cross? Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. He didn't say, take your rightful spot on the throne. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And so it's just total surrender. I I love what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. Listen to this. C.S. Lewis says, now what was the sort of hole man had got himself into? He had tried to set up on his own. To behave as if he belonged to himself. C.S. Lewis says, when we try to be the Lord of our own life, we get ourselves in a hole. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor That is the only way out of your hole. This process of surrender, C.S. Lewis says, this movement full speed astern is what Christians call repentance. (laughs) Now listen, Lewis understood this. He said, now repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and unlearning the self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing parts of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. In fact, it needs a good man to repent. And here comes the catch, Lewis says, only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person. And then he would not need it. Man, do you see it? We get ourselves in this hole where we try to be the Lord of our own lives. When as Christians at the foot of the cross, we take up our cross daily. We follow him. We can't both be on the throne and both on the cross at the same time. Have you surrendered completely? Have you laid it all down at the foot of the cross? Have you been cut to the heart when you've realized that Jesus died on the cross because of your sins, and he died on the cross because of my sins, and that he rose from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of God today? What is my response to that? Am I cut to the heart? Have I surrendered totally? Have I changed my mind about Jesus? Do I, do I strive and long for forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And the best way to get it is to stare God down and imagine that he's in the throne room and seeing his goodness. That's what leads us towards repentance. Is Jesus your savior or is he also your Lord? Verse 41 says this. So those who received the word were baptized about 3,000 souls that day. We're going to sing the song, Good, Good Father. Man, would you close your eyes, open your heart, and see the goodness of God? And if you look at the goodness of God, you might prepare yourself to be cut. I hope so. Let's sing.